0: This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. While no one escaped COVID-19 unscathed, landlords in the Commonwealth, particularly small, independent union owners, were among business people most profoundly affected by the epidemic as federal and state mandated shutdowns led many of the Commonwealth's 2 million renters to lose their income. The cascading effect was that many rent checks were delayed or never sent. Worse still, the court systems for dispute resolution were shut down just as the state and federal eviction moratoriums were rolled out. Despite being left with no income with which to pay mortgages and expenses, the often stigmatized and maligned landlord community was overlooked by small business relief initiatives such as the Paycheck Protection Program. How has this extraordinary past year and a half affected the nearly 70,000 landlords in Massachusetts? And what will the changes in the landlord community mean for local renters going forward? My guest today is Doug Quadrochi, Executive Director of Mass Landlords, a nonprofit for landlords with a byline that reads, Better Communities, Better Policy, Better Live, which offers support, networking, and training to its members in 20 chapters around the state. Before the pandemic, housing shortfalls were already near crisis levels. Once the pandemic struck, Mass Landlords helped members navigate the nearly impossible gauntlet of challenges. Doug will share with us how landlords adapted and changed in order to survive, which policy interventions were helpful in keeping tenants in place, and what lessons policymakers can use from the past year when trying to prepare for a future shock. When I return, I'll be joined by Mass Landlords Executive Director, Doug Quadjoki. All right, welcome back. I'm Joe Solvaji, and I'm now joined by Mass Landlords Executive Director, Doug Quadjoki. Welcome to Hubwonk, Doug.
1: Thanks very much, Joe. It's good to be here.
0: Now, Doug, I'm impressed with uh, Mass Landlords. It seems like a great organization. Uh, you are a nonprofit, uh, but a nonprofit with the word landlord in the name. Uh, so uh, there comes with that a little bit of stigma perhaps. But I, I want to focus more on your byline. I, I noticed that your byline is better communities, better policy, better lives. Now before we go into the policy issues, uh, let's talk about how mass landlords makes for better lives.
1: Sure. Well, I mean our mission is to create better rental housing. And the way we do that is by helping owners to run rental housing businesses. So it's something that a lot of the other nonprofits in Massachusetts that work in housing don't focus on at all. Most people take a renter advocacy perspective. But when it gets to having housing be you know, safe, not having lit paint, not having a fire risk, having it be affordable, um, having it be uh, the kind of place where we want to live, that's something that's primarily in the control of landlords and housing providers. So ultimately, We're all about making the best possible rental housings that you can afford to be there. Everybody has a great experience. Nobody's injured from their housing. And um, that's really what it means to have better communities with better infrastructure. It produces better lives. We're all better off for it.
0: So rather than seeing the relationship between renters and landlords as adversarial, you see uh, better landlords creating happier or more satisfied renters satisfied renters uh, that redounds to the benefit of their landlords. It's symbiotic. It's not uh, again. It's not adversarial. Is that is that what you're saying?
1: Well, I was going to say what one landlord said to me is, I want my renters to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, so that they can pay me for the housing I provide, and I can be happy and healthy too. And um, the the wealthy part, yeah, and the wealthy (laughs) part is where people get stuck because they forget to see. That uh, housing is enormously expensive in Massachusetts, and most of the rent payment goes straight to the bank, the community for taxes, insurance, repairs, and so on. Um, so there is um, there is a kind of stigma associated with landlording, but we're trying to clear that up, and, and really we're all about providing good rental housing and improving people's lives through it. So that's that's definitely where we're at.
0: So I wanna drill down into those issues um, uh, a little bit later um, to give our listeners a sense of the size of uh, the rental community. Um, We've got about 7 million residents in the Commonwealth. How many uh, landlords out there, and if you have the information, how many people are, are, are renters?
1: Yeah, there are about 1,100 renter households, which is roughly about 2 million renters in the Commonwealth, mostly around Greater Boston, and that's a very wide net. Greater Boston is a huge area. But really, throughout all of our gateway cities, areas like Worcester, Springfield, Lawrence, um, out in Pittsfield, there's rental housing um, in all the urban centers. Um, And how many landlords provide that housing? Well, as far as we can tell from bottom-up and top-down estimates, there are about 70,000 mom-and-pop landlords. Uh, Sorry, out of 7 million residents in the Commonwealth, and about 2 million of those rent. All that housing is provided by 70,000 people. Um, And Mass Landlords members are representative. Our average unit ownership is 19, which means the average uh, Mass Landlords member has 19 units. And the median is nine, which means half of our members have a couple three deckers. Or, like me, they live in the only building that they operate as rental
0: housing. I see. So, I'm sure that those images, uh, our listeners are thinking about what a landlord looks like. Uh, what comes to mind for me is a uh, uh, two family house where uh, someone owns the whole property and rents the other half out. I'm sure it's a fairly diverse uh, rental stock out there uh, large landlords, small landlords. Um, what does your research tell you? Uh, what's what's the typical profile of a Massachusetts landlord? Is he big, is he small? Um, what has your research shown you?
1: Yeah, um, about two thirds of all the housing is provided by landlords with 15 units or less. Okay. And that's measured in terms of housing years. There's been really detailed research done by a researcher out of Princeton, Henry Gomery. Um, but uh, yeah, two thirds of the housing is provided by landlords with 15 units or less. So it tends to skew toward the small side. And that means, you know, you can ask the landlord permission to grow a garden in the yard and the the landlord, if they're on site, might pull your package in out of the rain. Most renters have a more personal relationship than what a lot of the Boston renters think about with a corporate landlord who's never seen.
0: I see. All right. I don't want to bury the lead. We're going to talk about uh, the effect of the pandemic on renters and and, uh, landlords. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, let's take us all the way back to ancient history, back to uh, March 2020 and before. What were the primary concerns before we had a pandemic? What was the uh, the concerns for renters, landlords? Naturally, of course, we can point to the huge, hugely high cost of renting uh, in in the greater Boston area or Massachusetts in general. Um, but what were some of the other concerns that uh, that landlords and renters had?
1: right well so before we had a pandemic we had what a lot of people referred to as a housing crisis meaning that massachusetts although it's a wonderful place to live for many reasons is really expensive for a lot of us we have 351 different municipalities in the state and all of these have some form of single-family zoning which is another way of saying land in this particular area May not have rental housing on it unless someone has enough money to afford the whole house plus the large minimum lot size. So there are a lot of restrictions on Massachusetts land use already, and the result is there just isn't a lot of rental housing out there. Some estimates from the Metropolitan Area Planning Council are that we need to have between 200 and 500,000 new units of housing right now to absorb latent demand, and that's in addition to what has to be added each year as our population grows and people move into Boston for good jobs, tech and medicine and so on. So just in general, before the pandemic hit at all, there were already a lot of us who are really unable to afford our housing. And as a matter of course, each year 30,000 filings in the housing court for eviction um, were made. So what that means is the landlord and the renter have some kind of conflict about terms of the lease, primarily non-payment and they're going to court to get help dealing with that conflict. So 30,000 filings before the pandemic. And I should point out here early on, so everyone understands, a filing is not a forced move out. A lot of people think eviction and they think, oh my gosh, someone's furniture is thrown onto the street. If you file in housing court, there's a 95% chance that nothing bad will happen. Only 5% of those cases end up with a trial by judge or jury. Most of the cases, more than half, are mediated. And then a large number of those are dismissed or the landlord doesn't show up, which is another way of saying the renter fixed the problem and the landlord doesn't need to go to court anymore. So there's a big difference between a filing and a forced move out. But still, before the pandemic, we had 30,000 filings a year in Massachusetts.
0: Well, I want to develop on that a little bit later in the show. But let's just uh, I want to dwell on the fact that what you said is a housing crisis. It's really a crisis of of supply, right? The demand are a wonderful place. Everybody wants to live in Massachusetts and Boston. We have great schools, great hospitals, great uh, uh, industries. Um, but it's really a, a supply yeah, constraint, and- not a go ahead.
1: Yeah, and I mean, big picture, there's there's a great social safety net, the weather's good, although we complain about the snow. We don't have a lot of the natural disasters. We don't have poisonous animals like, you know, other parts of the world. We don't have a lot of violent conflict. So really, Massachusetts is a good place to live, and and the supply is artificially constrained. So it is primarily a supply problem, and, uh, and you've got a lot of demand to live here.
0: Sure, we're going to uh, do future shows on... Uh... A zoning reform, I think there's a, a lot to be learned in, in that dimension. But uh, let's uh, double back to um, what you offer. Let's say before the pandemic, uh, your organization, I, I was uh, interested to learn that you have some sort of voluntary uh, certification whereby you educate landlords in, uh, and award them, I suppose, a certificate that says, look, you've gone through this uh, rigorous uh, education, you've been given a test, you passed the test, and now you're a, uh, a certified good landlord. Uh, say more uh, for our listeners about what you offer in that
1: area. Sure, yeah. I mean, very, uh, from the very beginning with our logo, where we put a little tulip there, um, we're trying to show that most housing providers are doing their level best, and we're not the image, the stereotype of a slumlord. The best way to show that is to prove it. So, we've invented this certified Massachusetts landlord. Other states require some form of licensure to broker or rent out property. We don't do that in Massachusetts for whatever reason. We never went down the licensure road. We don't want to go down that road, but we have a lot of really tough landlord tenant laws. In terms of total regulation, Massachusetts is the toughest state in the country to be a landlord. California and New York are close seconds. Um, but the Massachusetts really has the most, you have to wait the longest amount of time before you can charge a late fee. You have to store uh, an evicted renter's belongings for six months, which is twice what any other state requires. And, and the data show most people pick up their stuff within 30 days. And there's just a whole lot of animosity in the public space against landlords. So we're trying to show, look, that stereotype that you're angry about, it's not real. And to be a certified Massachusetts landlord, you prove it by making a commitment to follow best practices taking a test to show that you know what you're doing, and then involving uh, yourself in continuing education opportunities. So we do all these events. We've done uh, about 110 since the pandemic started, for instance, Zoom meetings, but we used to do in-person, and we're going back to that, where people learn how to take a security deposit, um, how to accommodate a renter's request for a support animal or a service dog or something like that, how to uh, fix a a plumbing leak um, the right way without, uh, disrupting renters too much. Like there's just so much to know about landlording. So that's really what we're about. It's not. Uh, it's not the stick approach. We're trying to show you know this is the right thing to do, and we're doing
0: it anyways. So despite not having a, a required certification, there are a lot of onerous laws that make it very difficult to be a landlord. What you're hoping to do is create a voluntary program whereby landlords, uh, well-intentioned landlords, learn how to be better landlords. I don't know. Is the is the ultimate hope that we can relax some of those other uh, uh, constraints that land that tenants or that landlords uh, um, experience uh, as sort of a reward for your voluntary uh, certification?
1: Well, I mean, I wouldn't call it a reward, um, but uh, I would say some of the laws we have have unintended consequences. For instance, I, m- I mentioned late fees. You have to wait 30 days in Massachusetts to charge a late fee, which is twice the nearest state. Um, I think it's either Maine or Vermont, which requires a 15-day wait. What does that mean? As a practical matter, it means if you want to get a renter's attention uh, that rent is late and it's a serious matter for you, you can't charge a late fee. Your only option is to serve a notice to quit, which is the first step in the eviction process. And that's where, in Massachusetts, you have this kind of institutionalized um, notice to quit process, where landlords are issuing notices to quit every month just to get renters to pay. And I think if there were a late fee, it's conceivable that a lot of the incentive to pay on time would be produced by the late fee and nobody would be frightened about having to go to court. So really what we're about is better housing policy. We're not trying to reward landlords um, uh, in particular or make it harder for renters to get rental housing. We're just trying to make sure that the policies we have are consistent with best practices. Landlords do know a little bit about providing rental housing. So with the certification program, which is live, we've got a couple hundred folks signed up for that already. And I'm hopeful that it will, um, it will result longer term, perhaps, with some more focus on what it, what we can do with a certified landlord that we wouldn't need to do um, in another case. Like some municipalities have uh, mandatory inspections. Well, possibly if you get a certified landlord, they don't have to have a mandatory municipal inspection because as part of this certification, they promise to do that on their own. And they're um, held to that. Um, so you could imagine down the road it could result in a, um, a change in the regulatory landscape for the better, but um, right now it's still early days, and our rollout of this program was was impacted by the pandemic. So the test, for instance, is only going live this week.
0: Okay, well, so we've uh, talked around the the elephant in the room, the uh, pandemic, long enough. So let's let's get to it. Uh, you were there. You were at the helm of uh, your organization in uh, March 2020, and uh, mandatory shutdowns. Uh, many people. Uh, were forced out of their jobs. Uh, They can't work, can't earn money, can't pay rent. How did you see the the pandemic unfolding?
1: Well, it was a a really frightening time for a lot of reasons besides the obvious ones. I, I think a lot of people are aware that there was the Paycheck Protection Program and other measures put in place to help businesses. But what people may not be aware of is that landlords were excluded from all of this. There is a misconception uh, relating, I think, primarily to tax code, where they call rental income passive income, as if you didn't ever have to plunge a toilet or uh, mow the lawn. Mm -hmm. And in in fact, you do. It's quite a lot of work to be a landlord, but we didn't get access to any of this. And we didn't get mortgage forgiveness either or forbearance. A lot of single family and owner occupy condo owners got mortgage forbearance, but landlords had to be living in the building and the building had to be small enough to qualify. So that has a ripple effect out to renters, where suddenly now the landlord doesn't have any income because the renters have lost their job, and then the landlord has these expenses. So potentially, the landlord is going to get foreclosed on by the bank, and then the renters are going to get evicted in a foreclosure. So there was just this big gaping hole at the start of the pandemic policy-wise, and a lot of people were legitimately very afraid. And I I can say um, both sides of the house, I, I guess, Uh, House housing policy uh, equation, the renter advocates and the landlord advocates both got death threats for saying anything. Um, It's on social media primarily, but a couple of us on the landlord side and on the renter side got calls we would rather have not received because people were very afraid that we were losing our housing and there'd be no protection for either the landlords to provide it or the renters to stay put. And that's really what generated in this unprecedented uh, eviction moratorium. It, It happened in Different ways across the country and in different places. But in Massachusetts, they shut off all access to justice for all matters relating to housing unless there was a threat to an ongoing threat to health and safety. So you take those 30,000 pandemic filings, um, pre pandemic filings, I mean to say, where landlords and renters could access the courts to get to mediation and talk about payment plans and figure out how to work through things. And now suddenly you've got a pandemic and you've got no outlet for how to resolve conflict. So you had a lot of people who were really enormously stressed about the whole situation, especially on the landlord side. During the state moratorium, when they said you can only file a case, you can't even get into court, you can only file a case if there's an ongoing threat to health and safety. A couple hundred cases did get accepted for filing. The only one I know of in particular that crossed my desk was a renter leaned out of their window and they shot their neighbor. And the landlord was able to file that case in court. But all the usual conflict resolution stuff was cut off. So we had no no income, no subsidy, no ability to access justice to resolve disputes. It was really a very scary time. Um, And so a lot of landlords immediately started the process of selling out. And um, I can come back to this later, but I think it probably segues well into it. If you jump forward to August, August, September, October, when the state moratorium here was kind of in its uh, sixth month or so. we had 150 percent to 200 percent the normal sellouts in the industry as as we can tell by our membership non-renewal rate which means people were quitting being landlords faster than ever before because they had run out of patience and uh, and money and um, and felt that their their contribution to society was not valued. Um, so yeah. the the pandemic just the first six months of it were really just in no way good for housing providers or the rental housing market Sure. I mean,
0: uh, this shock to the system means uh, really otherwise good actors had few options, right? Uh, tenants, uh, no job, no uh, no money to pay the rent. Landlords, no money to pay the mortgage company, uh, and then uh, no courts to resolve differences. As you say, even if there was no pandemic, there would have been thirty thousand filings, uh, where would they go? Now, in defense of uh, moratorium, I think the first justification was not some sort of hardship mitigation, uh, that that moratorium was more based on uh, health concerns, right? We You don't want to be evic- evicting people when you have a rampant uh, pandemic. Wasn't that the motivation at the beginning of, of uh, the moratorium on evictions, rather than saying, look, these people uh, have financial hardships and ought not to be evicted?
1: Yeah, and that makes sense. And that's why mass landlords did not oppose the passage of the moratorium. But we can say, with hindsight, to nitpick, the actual wording of the law that we passed in Massachusetts said, you can only be evicted if you are a threat to health and safety. Mm -hmm. Meaning we'll take the renters who aren't following COVID protocols or wantonly spreading the disease and having COVID parties or whatever, and we'll let those people go out into the street and into shelter through the eviction process where they can spread it further. Mm It was a good example of a knee-jerk policy where we're trying to do the right thing to help people, but in actual wording and intent, they seem to get it exactly backwards. If you actually wanted to contain the health risks to keep everybody safe, it would have been better to have an eviction moratorium where you, you China style lock someone in an apartment. If Massachusetts want to do that, and we're not advocating that, but China did, right? They didn't let people leave their homes and Massachusetts took the exact opposite approach with our eviction moratorium and said, the only way you're getting out of housing is if you are that threat, spreading COVID or something like that. So it just—it was too rushed, and and ultimately, although I understand where it came from, we don't ever want to go there again. Um, turning off the courts, there was a better way to do that. We advocated for, for instance, a guarantee program. Um, but to your point, do I understand the motivation for it? Yes, absolutely, and that's why mass landlords didn't oppose the initial passage, although we certainly didn't like the wording of it.
0: Ultimately, now, the CDC uh, moratoriums were struck down uh, by federal courts as being unconstitutional. Two judges said, look, this is this is not constitutional to uh, have a moratorium. Uh, three, actually. Three, okay, I stand corrected. Uh, largely based on uh, property rights, right? You can't uh, tell people they, what they can do with their own property. Is that the justification for striking down the moratorium?
1: Well, so actually the CDC moratorium has just been extended again. Um, So although the administration um, has three serious legal challenges in uh, DC, I think it's Ohio and I'm sure it's Texas, Mm -hmm. um, these three challenges, the administration has extended again. And the main successful challenge, the one that I think really uh, turned our heads was in uh, Texas where the judge said, look, if this is about health, and the CDC is involved, as it should be, why isn't the CDC also stopping people from splitting up? Like the primary reason people move is because their relationship fails in some way. That's a very natural, it's unfortunate, but it's a very natural process. But the CDC hasn't said anything about keeping people in housing, even though their household no longer works. Um, And I think that really kind of undercuts the CDC's, um, I guess, imprimatur. They're trying to say this is for health, but they're not addressing the. of the reasons why people move. Uh, And there's a lot of other legal arguments in there, but the property rights argument is actually pretty weak because since about 100 years ago, maybe 120 at this point, the case law in the United States has been very clear. Like The government has the ability to impose lots of regulation, unfortunately, even if it would substantially diminish profitability, as long as it's tied to some um, public purpose. And it doesn't with the eviction moratoriums it doesn't cross the line cleanly enough into a regulatory taking like eminent domain where suddenly now you're entitled to compensation so we've just had this we would like to see the case law reversed on this because for a lot of people a lot of housing providers this moratorium did amount to a taking they couldn't earn any income they had to sell their retirement asset their house and now they're drawn down on cash savings or something so it has been a real problem for some but just legally, like the challenges to the CDC moratorium have been very circuitous. And uh, the way you would think to argue it, like this is clearly wrong, that just, it doesn't seem to have legal weight in this country.
0: Um, so uh, we've now have, like this past week, as you say, the CDC's moratorium has been extended by the Biden administration. Uh, that may or may not have an effect on Massachusetts, because uh, in the uh, intervening time, there have been other programs to help uh, tenants and landlords deal with uh, with rent. Uh, these are subsidies to renters. Say more about what uh, effective methods, or if you feel they're effective, uh, how has the state and federal government helped renters, and thus landlords, uh, uh, weather this storm?
1: Sure. Well, what we said from the beginning was, Housing is very expensive. If you want renters to have rental housing, then you've gotta pay the people who provide rental housing to cover their expenses at a minimum. And what they've done is recognize that at long last. So starting in the fall in Massachusetts, we allocated $100 million available for a rental assistance that gets paid on behalf of the renter to the housing provider, so we can pay our obligations as well. And then the federal government came in with another 400 million in December, December through the Consolidated Appropriations Act another $500 million in March for the American Rescue Plan Act. So we've got about a billion dollars in Massachusetts available for rental assistance. And we have estimated, bottom-up, top-down, various different ways, there's about a billion dollars of lost rent uh, over the pandemic here. So that's roughly the right amount of money. And theoretically, anyone who's been impacted by COVID can apply, get the rental assistance, and have their COVID-related housing debt eliminated. So broad strokes... Uh, the right thing has finally, in the end,
0: been done. So there was a billion-dollar hole and a billion-dollar solution. And uh, in theory, uh, everybody should be made whole, in theory.
1: Yeah. Now, in actual practice, the state has imposed quite a difficult set of uh, paperwork hurdles on the rental application, rental assistance application. And uh, the net effect is, for instance, in May alone, we rejected, we closed out 5,400 households worth of assistance applications because they hadn't filled in all the boxes. Those aren't attempted fraud. Uh, That's just people who didn't understand the paperwork, or they gave up, or they thought it was good enough, or they um, had some kind of um, concern with filling out, like the application asked for social. Technically, you don't have to be uh, in possession of a social security number to qualify for rental assistance. Like you could be here on a work visa or something like that. So as a practical matter, it looks like we've rejected more than half of the people in the state who've asked for help. That's a separate matter Mass Landlords is working on. Um, So I don't know if that billion dollars is actually going to be spent the way it should be. But in theory, it's there. Just in practice, it's been a lot of hard work to get that
0: out. Many of the people who are hardest hit by this pandemic were people in the service industry, and relatively lower income, uh, and perhaps those people are renters. Uh, uh, These are the people filling out these forms. Uh, Many either have uh, English not as their first language, uh, don't know how to fill out uh, complex documents, um, and, and may need help. Uh, it's in everyone's interest that they successfully fill this out, including the landlords. Is there a responsibility to the, to the landlord or an obligation of the landlord to cooperate and perhaps even assist their tenants in filling this out? I mean, everybody wins. Uh, where does the state stand in, in sort of uh, uh, eliciting the, the help of the landlord in completing these applications?
1: Yeah. So actually, the, the law in Massachusetts is very clear. Landlords have a definite obligation to participate in rental assistance. So, um, And the citation is Chapter 151B, Section 4. So if you get a renter's request for you to fill out some form related to assistance, you must comply with it. Um, and it's also in your interest. And if you have fewer than 20 units in Massachusetts, you can proactively start the application for your renter. And that's something I've done, as a matter of fact, because we had um, renters impacted. And And like a lot of people, too much going on to deal with 13 pages of state paperwork. So we did the application for them and they got the rental assistance that way. So that's very positive. Um, So in general, there's no reason, there's no good faith reason why anyone wouldn't want to participate in this. You have to pay taxes on your income after expenses as a landlord anyways. Um, You want to keep your customers and have a rent coming in. You can get up to 18 months of rental assistance. So that covers an entire pandemic. So really, yeah, every landlord should want to participate in this.
0: That's great, and your organization again is is helping people do that. Uh, so by helping your landlords, you're helping their tenants, and uh, this is win win for your, for, the, for the organization. Uh, now we're getting close yeah, to uh, we're getting close to the time our end of our time together. Uh, you have a lot of great data on your organization's website. Um, and I was encouraged by a re- recent graph that showed the eviction application actually de- declining fairly precipitously leading up to you know, today's recording, that uh, evictions are going down. Are, are we um, are we through this storm? Uh, are we in a, in a world where the renter-landlord uh, balance and that community seems to be coming to a pre-pandemic, quote unquote, normal? Or uh, are, are the uh, ripples of this pandemic going to last with us years to come?
1: Well, I hope we are near the end of this. But I'll tell you, that eviction graph, the eviction filings are way down. That looks very good. It perhaps doesn't tell the whole story because the way we've changed the court process over the last year, it now takes so long to get redress. A lot of people may be deciding, I can't go the legal court route. I'm going to go the negotiation free market, so to speak, route where I'm going to just buy my renter out. And we don't have good data on, like, for instance, let's say a household is um, there. $20,000 $20,000 in arrears, and the landlord is going to give them 10 grand or something to move on elsewhere. I mean, that the landlord's going to be out $10,000 um, net on that. Um, sorry, the cash only plus the unpaid rent, right? So they're going to be out a lot, 30 total. And that investment in housing is not going to can't be made because there was no income for that. So I'm just a little worried that because the rental assistance is slow, the courts are slow, there's a lot of money that should be going to housing that's not, and people are going to exit. So we're going to see folks slipping over to condos, or we're going to see rental housing continue to be in somewhat of a state of um, underinvestment. They call it deferred maintenance in real estate. So it's not really clear um, where we're headed. Um But I will say certain things are are very different, like the work from home, um, and some companies are calling employees back, but some are not. That we saw a lot of rent decreases in Boston, and those may tend to be around for longer than we think. And likewise, we saw a lot of rent increases outside of Boston in other rental communities like Worcester and Lawrence, some rents were up 10%. I think that may be here to stay too. So unless we address the root supply issue we talked about earlier, I think some of these disinvestments and price increases may last a while.
0: So um, roughly speaking, a pandemic, uh, as you say, a lot of people decided to get out of being in the business of being landlords early on in the pandemic. uh, I'm sure um, having their hand slammed in the door this past year and a half uh, has discouraged people from becoming landlords, remaining landlords, uh, which ultimately um, hurts aspiring tenants uh, if there's less stock, right? Uh, We've made a a bad bad problem worse potentially.
1: Yeah, exactly, and uh, to the extent that renter advocates don't like large corporate landlords, they really helped large corporate landlords buy a lot of distressed properties uh, the last year and consolidate the industry. So I just think in hindsight, eviction moratoriums, although I understand the motivation at the time, they weren't the right solution. It would have been far better to just say to everybody, don't anyone move, don't sweat it. We're gonna pay all this rent, we're gonna make sure we're through this together, but we don't know how yet. And if we had just said that, we didn't have to close off access to the court mediators and all that service that the Commonwealth provides to us for conflict resolution. That probably would have worked out better.
0: That's wonderful. I know um, there are many uh, tenants and landlords listening to the show. There's also legislators. Uh, That's a good bit of wisdom that you, you know, with with hindsight, uh, a better path to have gone. Now we're here. Um, We're in the middle of June 2021. Um, For the legislators listening to the show, uh, what... Uh, legislative fixes might they implement going forward that could help, God forbid, if there's a, a similar shock uh, in the future?
1: Well, our safety net is kind of fragmented here. And we've got this permanent support subsea, subsidy. We've got these one-time subsidies, raft and home base. There should be movement towards a more universal guarantee, the way an employer essentially guarantees to their employee, I'm going to file reports of your earnings if for any reason I have to lay you off because business goes down or whatever, you can get unemployment with the state. And there should be a similar kind of thing for housing. Landlords should be able to register their rental agreements, report rent payments or names or whatever to the state so that if something happens where the renter household is unstable, that renter household is basically already pre-qualified for assistance. It can arrive the week it's needed. Nobody need miss a rent payment or a mortgage payment or anything. And nobody need worry about it. And we don't seem to be having that conversation yet, but I hope that we'll move in the direction of that kind of guarantee because it works pretty well in the employment space.
0: So an unemployment, so it's a housing guarantee based on uh, a shock to the system where you know, we've, we've shut down uh, industries uh, and the government knows who's in those industries, how much they're paying in rent so they can direct the relief in the in the right way, in a timely way.
1: Yeah, the government knows who's in this housing. They've been there for three years. They've never missed a rent payment. Now we shut down all the restaurants. They used to work at a restaurant. Now we're going to get their rent because we shut down the restaurant industry. So I think that would, if this ever happens again, and I hope it doesn't, I think that would prepare us better. And that has some spin off benefits too, because in general, there's economic turmoil and people are always losing jobs and getting new ones and and having uh, life altering events and so on. And so if the safety net were just more responsive and more prepared, I think everybody would be a lot happier and less stressed about housing.
0: All right, so we're uh, at the end of our show. I appreciate your time. Uh, Of course, our listeners, uh, the landlords, renters, how can um, our listeners find uh, mass landlords uh, and and your, your good research and your advocacy?
1: Sure. Well, um, best way to contact us is email hello at masslandlords.net. We got a website with over 2,000 pages of free educational material. We get a team that monitors that email. And I put my cell phone up on the web too, not afraid for criticism, comments, suggestions from anyone. That's how we get better at what we do. And that's 857-557-6196.
0: And you have several chapters around the state, um, not just here in Boston. Uh, where else are you? Uh, are your chapters?
1: Oh, everywhere. Um, We've got uh, 20 different locations where landlords meet. Um, Our furthest west is uh, the Rental Housing Association of Berkshire County, so out in Pittsfield. And uh, our furthest east is uh, Cape and Islands right now. uh, We've got a new chapter started there. Um, So we cover the whole state at this point. Um, masslandlords.net slash chapters gives you a list of of, um, what's going on. Most of it's all getting consolidated into one single membership um, because we're trying to simplify it because really, it's the landlord-tenant law in the state that we have to follow and that's pretty consistent even though enforcement might vary and markets vary, certainly. Um, it's really uh, something we, we wanna provide the same level of service to everyone everywhere.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. And a wonderful way to uh, end the show. I really appreciate your uh, your wisdom and uh, uh, your organization. Great job. Um, and thank you for joining me on Hubwonk.
1: Sure thing, it's been an absolute pleasure.
0: This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show and Hubwonk, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your podcatcher. It would also help us if you offer a five-star rating or a positive review. Naturally, it will help if you share us with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for topics for future episodes, You can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.